welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour and we are with a cast of superheroes. That would be Matt Whalen and Ian Fales looking at the film Avengers. Um, guys, how are you? Great. Good, Mike. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. This is probably one of the most anticipated films of the year, Josh Whedon's uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, I, right out of the gate, I'm willing to say that I like this, think it's terrific. I'm I'm. I'm almost sort of sick of the Marvel discussion and good to be focused on just a movie. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of that's happening around um, that you can kind of get sucked into and kind of timelines and what's happening with this and that and that. And at some point, it's just good to get into a cinema, sit down and watch a movie. And uh, and in this case, I, I enjoyed the experience. What about you, Matt? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I think... Uh, I, I, I think I like the first Avengers a little bit better than this one. This one was not quite uh, as good in my opinion, although it's it's interesting because it, it, it really does, as a standalone film, it was a lot of fun. I went with my son and one of his buddies and my wife and uh, the, uh, the young men, the fifth graders who are about to become sixth graders next year. I mean, this movie was tailor-made for them. They, they absolutely loved it. I mean, they're, their minds were blown and they were laughing hysterically and, you know, just totally gripped by the whole thing. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's good. It's another, you know, sort of great, another cool, fun chapter in the, the saga of all of these, uh, characters. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're going to have to discuss it in its context of uh, a key player in the Marvel universe. But as I said, like to a certain extent, that's one whole thing that there's a lot going on about that and a lot of discussion about that. But I just uh, enjoyed watching these guys on screen and having fun. And I've always liked the the slight irreverence slash comic kind of um, relaxedness that you get from these uh, films. I don't know if that's just, um, you know, just me. It just seems like there's always some fun happening in it. And some of that fun is... Uh, way over the head of that demographic that you were just referring to but <laughs> yeah um, that's true too and you know some of it's just some good old-fashioned you can cheer for the good guys and uh you know boo at the villains kind of stuff it's not you know so that everybody uh is good is dark and and miserable of course it isn't you know um a discussion of the vfx show as we don't sort of touch on its uh, marvel versus dc universe-ness but um, yeah, generally speaking, notwithstanding some slight oddities, I thought it was a, a cracker of a film, and uh, and you know I felt like I got my money's worth. I went and saw it in IMAX in the back row, which is the best place to see it because uh, you get sort of most uh, benefit, and it was everything you want out of a blockbuster: spectacle, fun, um, big, uh, you know, ballsy. Um, not completely predictable, but by the same token, it delivered what you wanted it to do. So yeah, I thought it was really really good. Uh, what about you, Ian? Um, yeah, I agree. It, it, it totally works as a standalone movie for me. But um, I also do think it's kind of nice that it fits into that Marvel universe. And I almost felt like because I've watched all the others and I enjoyed all the others and um, I'd actually watched them all in a marathon about a week before, you <laughs> kind of feel oh, cool. you kind of feel almost rewarded for all the little things that you can pick up on, you know, things that match and bits of the universe that you start realizing were hopefully planned or, you know, kind of come to pass this time around. And so I think if you haven't seen any of the others, you're still going to love it. But if you love all the other films, you're also going to get an even more enriched experience. And I was going to say too, that the, the irreverence and the humor in this one, I thought was actually 
better than the first one. There's, there's so many sort of tongue-in-cheek references, you know, even to things where people have sort of were critical of, you know, like Black Widow and Hawkeye not really having superpowers. And Jeremy Renner even says that in the film, you know, he makes that line about all I've got is a bow and arrow and I don't understand it either. Something like that. And yeah. I just, he you know, was, he was a, great in this. I thought they gave uh, Renner like some great lines in this one, which was a lot of fun because he, I think he kind of gets overshadowed by the, you know, the larger characters. And it was really neat to see him get some great, uh, great lines in there and his, his uh, uh, family farm <laughs> sequence and stuff was kind of interesting as well in that context. Uh, look, I thought it was really, really good as well. I'd have to say if it came down to a push comes to shove, I'd go for the first film just because this film lacked the uh, sort of puny God um, moments where I just almost wanted to scream uh, in, in applause of just how marvelous it was. And and one other aspect which I'm going to get into, if I can, that just didn't quite click with me, and I'll see if you guys have this. So I don't want to be negative because the visual effects are spectacular and the films are spectacular. But before we get to the visual effects, this isn't actually a visual effects problem. This is a, a casting problem. I just found that Ultron's voice by James Spader was a bad mix. And I, and I don't mean audio mix. I mean, like, the trouble was it was so uh, James Spader and the character was so a robot <laughs> that it just seemed to mismatch. It just didn't connect. I just didn't feel like that was the voice of Ultron. There are occasions when I see films and I, I just cannot imagine anybody else doing that. I just, you know, no one else would, would uh, be in that role. Um, but just James Spader, while I like the actor, it just didn't feel like uh, he was to the baddie what you know, many of the other actors are to their characters, which was just a natural fit. I mean, I, I just felt the voice was too polished, too um, sophisticated. And and while all the animation was spot on and all of the sort of character traits that you wanted from the bad guy was spot on, it just didn't feel quite like a connect. Now, I, I think they had a problem because Jarvis had already established that the voices of these kind of robots are pretty human and they sound pretty normal but yet i just somehow buy jarvis's voice just streets ahead of i buy by his i mean um do you guys have any uh, agreement disagreement i mean i i don't know I, I i don't know that that's something that i would pick out i think um you know at least my memory of uh, all roles james spader <laughs> from when he was sort of starting out in his uh or at least my first memories of him are from sort of the John Hughes movies when I was a, a high school age kid, you know, and and uh, he was always kind of like the the rich kid from the good side of you know or the the wealthy side of the tracks or whatever, and he was kind of a snooty, you know, kind of a, a douchey kind of character always. And now he's I think he's really well known now, at least here. I don't know if it plays internationally, but on a, a program here called The Blacklist, where he's like a like a, I have seen it. A, yeah, yeah. He's like a wealthy. Uh, I, I mean, it's like a popular kind of almost like that show Twenty Four. Uh, yeah. that was really popular for a while. It's very similar to that in its sort of overall ilk. But I actually thought that his voice uh, it was an interesting choice. And at first, I think I might have had the same kind of like gut reaction at first, like, oh, that's weird. Like you'd think you'd go for a kind of a, a heavier, more menacing voice. But then I actually thought that some of the humor that was um, embedded into the character and his his sort of nonchalant 
but at the same time, kind of um, singular focus. Um, I thought the, that Spader actually kind of, it, it made it work for me. It kind of brought the character to life in a way that maybe a different voice actor uh, maybe wouldn't have. I mean, if you'd had sort of, I don't know, Stallone doing the voice, it would have been disastrous. I, I grant you there could have been far <laughs> worse choices. By the way, it's funny that you went there on the, his earlier references. I went straight to Sex, Lies and Videotape in my head. Um, oh, interesting, yeah. But um, maybe that's because I wasn't so much into, uh, you know, the uh, pretty in pink sort of phase. But, um, yeah, I... Also, Boston Legal is kind of like I kind of know him as, but in all of these occasions, he's he's kind of that um, n- not know it all, but he's kind of got this air of um, cultured arrogance slash perceptive kind of you know playing with you that just didn't seem to fit that well with the character right out of the gate um, of Ultron, and so for for like. Like I was hearing the voice and I was seeing the animation and they just didn't click for me. Ian, what about you? I disagree because I thought a lot of his scenes were all about Ultron as like a performer, you know, taking the stage, being the center of attention and almost like performing on a, as a Shakespearean play type thing. And his voice, sometimes James Spader sounds a little bit English. I mean, I don't think he is English, but he, he sort of, that to me did match what Ultron was trying to do and also Ultron's motivations are meant to be noble you know he's the bad guy but he's meant to be what he thinks he's doing is saving the world so I don't know I actually had a really different response to his voice in that it matched what I thought Ultron was trying to do hmm okay well I'll have to uh to go for the majority here but that that really just was an off note for me um it just I I get the whole you know thing about uh like the humor the lines as written and delivered were funny, you know, the, the sort of, I can't believe this is happening to me kind of thing. But the character was more robotic and more um, uh, technologically based. And it, I just didn't get that. There was a, such a kind of a subtle humanity to uh, Spader's delivery. Now, I guess I think, though, as an actor, though, he kind of he kind of has the same sort of gravitas as like, you know, the, the Robert Downey Jr. or the... Um uh, Chris Hemsworth or, uh, you know, he kind of, st- he can, or be Scarlett Johansson or something like he still kind of has that kind of weight and that sort of gravity as a presence and to inject that voice and that personality of that actor into that really, I think, incredibly well rendered and well animated, uh, uh, digital character see I mean, it really yeah, brings it, it to life in a way that I think it would have been, I, I just can't think of who you would have put in in place of that voice. So I think Jeremy Reiner is just terrific as as Hawkeye, right? But mm. it's an easier role in a sense, right? I think Chris Evans does a really, really good job because he has this um, from the past naivety about him that you, you actually believe, like you actually believe the guy he is... He kind of seems like that dude. Yeah, he seems script. good and uh, that he would sort of, you know... I mean, and the jokes about him with the language and stuff were really, really funny, but, but you didn't kind of, it didn't seem out of place him saying it in the first place. Like yeah. his kind of um, goody two-shoes thing doesn't seem like an act. It seems completely believable. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is probably, you know, the best of the lot at just seeming like, 
you know, if I met Robert Downey Jr. and had dinner with him, I would find it hard not to accidentally call him Tony between the first and the second course because I imagine that they are one and the same. Now, that's not true, I'm sure, but I mean, he's just so convincing as that actor. And only yeah. when you see Robert Downey Jr. playing some other part do you kind of realize, oh, he's acting. Um, I think Mark Ruffalo is maybe not quite as good, but still great. Um, and Chris Hemsworth, I think, really does deliver the, the beefcake of Thor oh, totally. with kind of just yeah. the... Same kind of, and that whole shtick with him and the and the hammer was great. And his oh, yeah, that was really shtick funny. with uh, was just yeah, really really good stuff. So so it's it's just all about for me the mismatch, not the performance, not the animation, not that one was badly written or whatever. But just I you know I just sort of believe I believe Samuel L. Jackson. You know I just believe these characters are really really Did well. You- did you have any thoughts, though, of, I mean, just not to harp on this for too long, but it's kind of interesting. Like, I, I, I'm sort of fascinated by the, the the conversation a little bit. Like, could you think of a of an actor with a really distinct voice that, like, in your mind, that, like, if, if you were to sort of cast that role that you would have, that you might have gone for? Um, I don't know if I can answer that. Maybe I'll think about it while we're talking. But I will say this. When you're watching animated films, sometimes I hear the voice of the actor. Sometimes I just see the character. And it doesn't necessarily be... I mean, for example, I think Mike Myers wasn't front and center with Shrek. Like, Shrek was Shrek, yeah? I think Mike Myers delivered that. Whereas in the same film, John Cleese plays the king, and I'm just hearing John Cleese. But I guess Um, Mike Myers is putting on a voice, isn't he? I mean, James Spader did his own Uh, voice. Well, but... Okay, so uh, what's that... um, uh, there, There are a bunch of animated films, right, where you see characters and... Buzz Lightyear, right? I hear Buzz Lightyear, you know? I don't see Tool Time with Tim um, when I see Buzz Lightyear. I just see Buzz Lightyear, right? I mean, I just, I'm I'm there. And and he has not a particularly forced accent or anything in that. And I'm just going to animated characters because that's the most removed. Yeah. yeah. And of course... No, it's, a, in, it's a really good point, though. I mean, I, I feel like that you bring, putting it in that context, I, I see, I think I understand more what you're getting at. Like, I don't know that I totally see it in the same perspective, but I, I understand more what you mean. I think about the voice being, it's like you can't detach that voice from the actor. He, it, it just feels like you're looking at James Spader's voice coming yeah. out of this really cool looking robot. <laughs> yeah. And I see what you're saying. And yet I, uh, you know, I really honestly believed in, um, to, to just keep going back to the same film, of course, uh, that um, Jarvis, right? Like I hear Jarvis as Jarvis. I don't hear a guy who was also in Wimbledon and in other films right. that I've liked. I just hear Jarvis. And as I say, it could just totally be me, right? Like I'm willing to accept that it's uh, just me. But it's a difficult problem, isn't it? Because you want the actor with the distinctive voice. I mean, that is absolutely what you want. You don't want uh, mediocrity. But that exceptionalness, that exceptional voice, that really interesting delivery, when you know, you're hearing the actor takes me out of it just as much as a bad visual effects shot would take me out of it. I was like, oh, that's James Spader. And, uh, and I'm not you know, some mega James Spader fan that has seen everything that he's possibly done. And it's just, it's distinctive. It's doesn't quite, uh, quite lock. And, and I guess that's the thing about, you know, visual effects full stop, right? Which is that it's, there's an appropriateness. There's a, an ability to apply it in the context of the environment we're in and buy it or not. So there's stuff that happens in this film. It's just completely absurd, right? But in the context of the film, quite often those visual effects just work in the internal logic of the film and you just go with it. Um, and when you get something that doesn't do that, 
for whatever reason, that sort of takes you out of the film. And it, it, there's no absolute. It's not as if you could say that will never work in any context. Just in this context, in this moment, in this story, with this uh, whatever, I do or don't uh, buy it. But, hey, that's very, very subjective. Um, what did we think about, and I said I wasn't going to, I just want to sort of round out this conversation before we get into the visual. What did we think about sure. the nature of the plot? So in the first film, we had a earth-threatening event contained on New York, and it was very much uh, the world watched while it happened. In this one, it felt like they were keeping some of their powder dry in that this wasn't a global event. And I'm going to give you a contrast on that. In the Superman film, it was a global event happening either side of the planet that was destroying multiple cities. Uh, you know, like There are a lot of films where it's a, a, an absolute global event. Tons of cities are being destroyed. Um, Independence Day, you know, like across the world, everything's being hit. It felt to me like uh, Marvel was keeping its powder dry and it's contained the major stuff to some cities. Like Korea got pounded in a fight that wrecked a bit of a, you know, a couple of blocks, right? But it didn't wipe out, you know, all of South Korea. And then you get this Eastern, fake Eastern European country that gets, you know, potentially uh, it's going to wipe out a whole lot of people, of course, but it's still contained in that one spot. It's not like we saw all of America devastated, uh, Europe uh, completely in darkness, um, you know, hundreds of millions of people homeless kind of thing. It feels like you could have a global war in a later film and they haven't sort of gone there yet or i guess it could be a response that some criticism of the recent some recent films including superman have been that there's just way too much destruction um and it's actually it's kind of almost referenced in the film in that tony stark has these legionnaires are they that go and fix up mess that the avengers have created you know and they're actually they actually have a bit of um you know, there's a bit of bad blood about them until the end of the film in that they really have been tearing up a lot of the world up until now. But I, I agree with you that it, it did feel a bit more contained and I guess in some ways that might make it more relatable, you know, like you feel sorry, much more sorry for the people of this fake country, Sokovia, when, you know, they do get attacked on. I mean, they, they wiped out parts of Washington in uh, Captain America, but it was still contained, right? Like flattened Washington. And it was in a city. And it feels like Marvel is trying to not just have... Because like in the Superman thing, like every country is kind of affected by this across the planet, you know, kind of mega event. And, you know, you would imagine that the aftermath of that is just for forever. Um and also huge amounts of stuff get just flattened, destroyed, and, and, and wiped out. So where do you go from there kind of thing? Uh, I, I, I just feel like uh, yeah, there, there's more that, that Marvel can do because they haven't upped the ante to the point that it's just ridiculous. Because when they do go ridiculous, the film after ridiculous is normally the one that jumps the shark and you just like, well, this is just mind-numbingly dumb. Yeah, so one of the things I, I kept thinking about in this one was that it felt like there was you know, a, a kind of, and I, I think in a cool way, like a, an effort to kind of attract more of the global box office, you know, by having part of the film take place in Korea and then in sort of, you know, an Eastern European, fictional Eastern European country. And I thought that was kind of cool because, you know, I'm seeing things that I haven't seen before too. And so I'm kind of game for that. But the one thing I actually was going to say that, which 
I do think it works as a standalone movie, but the one thing that I was kind of feeling, you said that you felt like they were sort of keeping their, their powder dry by not yeah. sort of going bigger. The one thing I kept thinking too, though, was that I sort of felt like it felt like a transitional story. Like this is a story that they're, they're already thinking about the next movie or the next set of movies where, you know, they're setting up these chain of events. And I know we were kind of trying to steer clear of talking about too much of the timeline stuff, but I actually kind of felt like that was something that was going on in this film was that there was an effort to construct this sort of, you know, conflict. It's about a conflict developing, you know, within the team within the unit itself. And so, you know, whether or not these, you know, complex and, or, or, you know, complex for comic book characters, I guess, um, complex characters, these sort of uh, diverse group of people, can they maintain a sort of a, a team oriented outcome? Or is the individual nature of some of the um, individual participants going to lead to some kind of you know, conflict down the road. And I felt like that was something that was being developed throughout the course of the story. I I think certainly intentionally intentionally so. Well, you're right, because the next film is called Civil War. And the plot, as I understand it, is literally that there's a big dispute between the Avengers about what their role is, um, especially between Captain America and Iron Man. So I, I think you're right. I think they are setting up for more tension. I also think it was a genius move to get rid of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, in the previous setup because yeah. the trouble with it is when you've got them as an international bureaucracy and they're part of an international bureaucracy that's run by a bunch of people, it's all a bit like our superhero overlords. Um, or they're like, got or them, they're like cops or something. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like a bit, you know, yeah. Um, anyway, let's move on to the visual effects because, I mean, we could have a whole episode discussing, you know, yeah, sure. plot stuff. <laughs> and, and and obviously, for some people, that's hugely interesting. But for me, that's a different show, right? This is the VFX show. Let's discuss VFX because there are a couple of shots in here uh, in the film that a couple of companies did. Before we go any further, Ian, who has our roster on this um, rather large uh, set of visual effects shots? Yeah, I mean, I think it's approaching 3,000 shots. Um, well, the overall soup is Chris Townsend, who's worked on a couple of uh, Marvel films. And the big studios were ILM, and they're behind Hulk and uh, Ultron and a lot of the end sequence um, and so much more. Then there's Trickster. They did that uh, Ultron Mark One, a couple of the Legionnaires and also some other sequences. Dean Egg did South Korea. Animologic was doing the holograms for Jarvis and Ultron. Framestore was doing a bit of um, a Vision's body, and they did a bunch of other sequences. Lola did incredible Vision face work. Uh, I love that character. That character yeah. was so cool. Yeah, great. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> and then, and then you know, there's a whole bunch of other companies. Um, Territory did some great uh, screens. Perception did that awesome main on ends sequence, the marble statue. Then you've oh, got yeah, Method, yeah. Luma, um, Previs from Third Floor. And um, I didn't mention before, but Trickster also did a lot of the design work and they sort of got the shots of Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch worked out. But but one of the big things on the film, I think, was asset sharing and shot sharing, which pretty much happens now in all these big films. But it seemed to work really well. It was sort of imperceptible who did what sometimes, I thought. Yeah, so ne- nearly 3,000 shots. Big film. Okay, so... 
So I want to throw it to you, Matt. Um, standout shot or sequence? Hmm. I mean, it's like there's there's big ones and small ones. I mean, you know, I think standout sequence for me, probably more. So I feel like the the easy go to one is the Hulkbuster thing, but that's probably wasn't it for me. I think the one I really that really stood out was. I really did like that end sequence with the, uh, even though it's just so hard to wrap your head around, I love the scale of that huge part of that city being sort of, you know, brought way up into the sky and all the sort of detritus and debris and stuff kind of falling off the uh, underside of the city. There was something about all that particle work and and the scale of it that I just thought was so... um, I don't know, just something so kind of glorious about all that. I, I love seeing things that I feel like I, I couldn't see anywhere else, you know, where the scale is just so huge. Um, but then some of the smaller things that I really thought were super cool, and, you know, they're, they're, they're not visualizations that make any sense, you know, on a sort of scientific level, but as a narrative device, I love the visualizations of the Ultron program and the... Um, Jarvis program and the, the sort of the orange and the blue and the, how they were kind of these sort of holographic projections. I thought that was such a cool, that was the one sort of display thing that I just thought was so neat in this project. Ian? I love vision. I just thought knowing what Paul Bettany had gone into to do that um, and what Lola came out with and also um, ILM and Framestore doing some body work. Um, I just, I just love that way that they approached that character and we we talked to the visual effects people and what they said was well he is a robot but he's organic and so why not approach him from a different way even make him look like something from the uncanny valley um and then work backwards go into the uncanny valley yeah deliberately (laughs) and but that's exactly how i felt when i saw the character and i think so they nailed it you know it's sort of he looks weird and that's kind of the point so I just, I just, and also Paul Bettany, I think, really worked. And it's sort of just a nice, fun thing, him being Jarvis and being Vision. So um, for me, that was, that was one of the best characters and best visual effects pieces. Well, I, I'll give special mention to the character animators on Ultron's face because uh, making a character have the kind of, I mean, okay, once we accept my issue over the dialogue, once you're trying to give that kind of a performance where you're making kind of snide comments, but you're given a model that's meant to be metallic and hence can't bend, squash, stretch, have a blush response, can't bend and wrinkle and have any of the stuff that you want from a human face and still deliver the snide kind of clever, intellectually competent uh spider type performance so like that is hard that's hard it's like really i mean really this is what i've got to work with and oh i don't want it to look like the metal's bending at any point it needs to all be kind of articulated i mean it's it's a much more nuanced face than say um the transformers faces which are also trying to give some performances right but just don't to my mind require the same level of close-up um snidiness and cleverness that uh that we get out and it's just more mechanical more sort of spinning bits but but my absolute without a doubt go to winning shot i just think is off the dial good is hulk in the forest getting his hand stroked by um black widow uh in the first you know end of the first whatever sequence and and i 
I tell you why, I just love that to death. It's like, for a start, we've had multiple films where no one could get Hulk right and it was a complete disaster. It was just, you know, unmitigated, just bad. Secondly, you've got um, real performance and you have to convey that she is kind of talking down the wild beast, but he's not just as simple as somebody that's in love with her. But all these proportions are wrong. It's huge. It's a difficult logistical exercise. We're right on his face. Um, he's kind of got to have not, I don't understand what's going on, but I understand that I like you kind of layers of stuff. And, and we have to not be, you know, in the uncanny valley where we go, why would she even have this kind of coy smile about him? Because he's like a friggin' repulsive thing and he's not acting. I think his performance in that shot in the, in the blown out hole of whatever it was, they blew a hole in, in the, de- in the uh, forest and she's on the edge of the, crater just a cracker of a shot i mean that one for me was the uh you know put that on my reel put on nothing else and i'm and i'm happy that i've uh, i've worked this decade i don't know i just thought it was because hulk busting was fun you know and but it's just destruction pipelines and yeah. cracking and and the hulk buster suit is kind of fun but it's ott and you know it's fast cuts and there's quite a few places to hide and it's over the top of a lot of live action kind of plates and crap flying everywhere really well done don't get me wrong but just not like i'm needing to just totally um believe a a subtlety of a performance he's not struggling with any inner demons Mm -hmm. um in fact that scene you don't actually get a lot of the actual actor at the end which is where you normally get the struggle of the humanity or before he turns into him the struggle of like you know uh, i don't want to be him and i'm sort of oh no i'm turning into hulk instead we just get this bit uh, where he's just looking like he's being talked down by. And I, I also, I don't think I've seen that before. I don't know. Has anyone seen a Hulk being talked down from being Hulk before? He just normally sort of lands somewhere really, really heavily and passes out. Maybe not uh, since the uh, Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno days, maybe, I think. <laughs> right. And, and and do you think that they match that in in this one? <laughs> he does come down in San Francisco in the first film, doesn't jennifer Connolly, but it's it's not the same effect and it's so much more subtle here and you're so close and you're seeing all the emotion from um mark ruffalo yeah i i agree it's an amazing sequence it's brilliant i mean that is that is a piece of i mean look it's not but but you know just to equate it for a second like it's it's a luxo junior it's a you know digital thing that's rendered in a computer that's just a model with some you know controls that gets moved around with rendered with some motion blur and some realistic lighting and it's a character on the screen just acting and it's it's still not a person i mean it's not it's you know it's still more dobby than it is you know just scarlett johansson herself because obviously he's still a character but he's pretty human I mean, he's not really human. He seems to have a longer yeah, period I mean, from the I, nose to the mouth. I feel like Hulk in this film is, you know, infinitely more um, emotive and expressive in terms of, you know, the the facial details. And he, he looks so much more, to me, he looked more like Mark. I know he looked like Mark Ruffalo in the last one too, but I feel like he looked even more like him in this oh, yeah. one in a way. There was so much more, like, subtle movements that you then see you know in the actor when he's you know yeah. in the bruce banner mode and and just the render and the composites overall i think when you see him 
in those quieter moments interacting. And I, I have to say, I do love that shot of Hulk sort of near the end of the film uh, where he's still in Hulk mode and he's in the, the whatever, the, the jet. And uh, you see him in the cockpit from outside the jet. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> Just how he looks so ridiculously large inside that space. But you totally, you feel so sorry for him, don't you? I mean, he's a big green CG character. It yeah, I mean, that's works. kind of always been that character, right? He's sort of the, the you know, it's the Beauty and the Beast story or whatever. Like, yeah. he's the Beast. and Yeah, no, but I think Ian's point is we feel sorry for the Luxo Junior lamp, right? We, I mean, it's the it's the emotion. Oh, sure. Yeah, the, yeah, the emotive quality. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, I'm just talking totally plot. But yeah, of course, yeah. like the emotive quality that's being able to be conveyed through the rendering of that character. I mean, it's it's really impressive. Like, I mean, it's the fact that I didn't even think of it in that context, I think, speaks volumes of the fact that that's, <laughs> that's absolutely true. Because the other characters, like Ultron, are fun, but I don't have pathos or a sense of an inner kind of, you know, journey. Um, and they're not even nearly as realistic. And then when you get to things like, uh, I don't know, you know, vision, like it's an actor, right, with makeup, digital makeup, albeit, but it's, you know, it's well applied over the top of an actor. Uh, this is really, you know, going from uh, a performance to an interpretation of a performance. One of the tools that I love that we discovered, we went and uh, spoke to the guys at ILM, and I've got to say, like, you know, I mean, I, I'm very... <laughs> gushing about a number of vfx supervisors in the world but i mean put a ben snow on the list as like just one of my all-time favorite guys to talk to as a vfx supervisor yeah, he's such a nice guy for sure you know yeah like yeah give him this month's nicest guy ever award but anyway ben snow um we talked to him but one of the things they were telling us that was really interesting is they they actually built like a monster mirror thing for um the actor which i thought was really interesting because, you know, we've discussed this idea of that one of the advantages of putting makeup on an actor is the actor kind of gets into the part and it gives them something. I've heard actors talk about that. They put on old age makeup or whatever it is and they found the character because they looked at themselves in the mirror and they started, you know, looking at their face expressing and they sort of that informed them back on their performance. And in a realistic sense, you know, if you've got a, a fairly grey hoodie kind of thing on and a lycra suit and a you know skull cap and a bunch of dots on your mouth and stuff you're not you're not given much to perform with in a an actor sense now obviously these guys are good actors and you know they can imagine and uh and place themselves but mark ruffalo nevertheless like any actor i'm sure you know would not deny that in makeup thing well it's a pain in the butt to put on does you know inform their kind of decisions so ilm gives him a computer which started out as a couple of computers it went down to one which is basically like think of a laptop with a camera in it that's facing you as mark ruffalo is looking at himself on the screen he is seeing hulk in real time acting back at him so as he pulls a sneer he sees how that sneer would be interpreted through the current retargeting to hulk and so he gets to see his performance in real time just him in his trailer um and so he can like rehearse his lines in the mirror but the mirror is hulk not him and i think that's a really really interesting thing to do um, in fact they also gave it to james spader so he could do the same thing with ultron um, but as we're talking about hulk let's keep going there uh, and so unlike the first film where he was you know s seeing what he would look like and they showed him marquettes and a bunch of other stuff he had to take a somewhat leap of faith in this one he could sort of develop the performance in character um and this real-time stuff is pretty impressive and ilm is 
no slouch when it comes to implementing uh, facial models. So, so yeah, it's, it's not rendered to the fidelity that we see on the thing here, but but uh, by all accounts, really good quality uh, and enough that uh, both Mark Ruffalo and James Spader apparently thought it was really, really good. And so heck of a good tool to offer an actor, I think. To, oh, to God, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And now, of course, I totally want to emphasize that that the Mark Ruffalo performance then gets enhanced by the actors as it's interpreted into into Hulk. But we're both on the same page, right? Like we've got the animators working to the same end that Mark's working to because Mark knows where the animators are going in terms of retargeting. And so then Mm -hmm. he's sort of feeding a performance that's not making them have to do the heavy lifting on on just, uh, well, how is this going to work inside Hulk's kind of features? I, I thought it was a cracker of an idea. That's brilliant. I mean, I think it's, you know, it, I, I, the joke I, I always remember when way, way back in the ye olden times when I worked at ILM, I remember, you know, if I had a friend or a family member or something, we'd walk through on a tour and you'd walk by and you'd see some of the animators and everybody always made the same joke, you know, and they'd be like, oh, the animators, they all have mirrors on their desks. And they would always say, oh, it's because they're so vain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which I always thought was so funny, but of course, you know, we know the reason why animators have mirrors, right? It's that exact thing. Like if you're doing some sort of facial performance, you want to be able to understand like what are the right facial shapes that I need to make to convey X or to make this vowel sound or whatever. You know, what is my mouth doing? And and you know, to, for an actor then to have access to that, who's portraying a digital character? I mean, it's really. I think it's we're we're at a point, and I was playing around with um, the face shift demo which is sort of like a poor man's version of that tool although it's actually a pretty amazing tool it seems like you could do a lot of really sophisticated things with it if i were to delve deeper into it it's one of the things i'm looking at um uh bringing into my classroom uh hey so that's really but so so just to jump Mm -hmm. in there that's really funny because i did exactly the same thing at fmx i sat down and did a whole face and just before we came on to record this i was looking at my performance mapped um, to a humanoid face. Yeah, it's uh, it is really something. I I, I did a uh, I participated in a, a a thing here at the VCU libraries, and it was like a tech uh, a tech week uh, maker fair kind of thing, and just you know volunteered some of my time. And I brought an Oculus Rift for one demo, and then I also just had the trial version of Face Shift and had that set up with the Connect, uh, and uh, people were coming by and sitting down and just playing with the demo uh, character and then we had a couple characters that students had made and it was pretty fun I mean it was amazing to see how quickly that could target something uh, and and map those movements with no with no targets on anybody's face right it's just looking at facial features and right that's, so that was a, the point I didn't make about the ILM thing it was it was marvelous yeah yeah and that's yeah. really cool and I think you know we're getting to the point where that kind of analysis and real-time rendering capability is is so um well i don't want to say it's easy to do but it's 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 relatively trivial um to set up something um in in at least for simple movements not to in any way minimize i'm sure what ilm built was infinitely more sophisticated than uh anything i'll ever uh, be playing with but it's the kind of thing that it it really changes the game in a big way and it adds a whole nother repertoire of tools um, to the actor as well as to then the animators uh, further down the pipeline. So I think those kind of developments um, that we're seeing sort of emerge more and more, these kind of real-time onset solutions are just super, super exciting. Yeah, I don't know that um, 
you might be selling the tech a bit short, like infinitely better. I actually think that. Oh well, I, do, I guess shift, I just don't know. I haven't seen yeah. the, the ILM set. No, but so I, I do actually do think that the it. the face shift stuff is remarkable, um, and it's. I guess I'm sort of saying is that I actually think one of the great things about what's happening with technology at the moment is that it isn't just ILM that gets the toys. You know what I mean? Like obviously they get better toys because they build their own and rah rah rah. But you know, like it's not as if you can't get you know like in the old well, days stu- had, like, students or ind- independent filmmakers yeah. and artists can get their hands on these tools and with and they're good rel- they're not yeah exactly useless, yeah. yeah yeah totally that's much better said than the way i was putting it um and and so do you want to just outline what face shift does just so that someone's listening because it's sort of like well this is already good you guys know what you're talking about but just explain what you have to do to get a face into it as it were uh i mean you know the the I've I've only spent a little bit of time with it. You could probably speak more to it, but my experience with it was was it's so amazingly um, simple to set up, at least to sort of get it your sort of hit the ground running, at least and be able to see what it's capable of doing. In order to build, I think you know a head and a, a character with all the you know sort of facial expressions and blend shapes and stuff that you'd want to have in a specific character head might take a little bit more time to build, but um, you know, there are demo versions of heads and you, you literally just, you know, you open up the application and you can use, I used a, an old Xbox 360 connect and I just plug that into, uh, the computer I was running it on and, you know, pointed it at myself and use that as the, uh, uh, system and it's 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 looking and it's tracking it's looking for specific features right it's tracking at least the setup I was using the sort of um, turnkey one was uh, it tracks the eyes the eyebrows uh, and the mouth shape and it's uh, taking that data of whatever it is that you're doing it's tracking both the depth as well as those features and then it's applying that data to um, the rig to the model and it's it's a real-time capture that you know it seemed pretty successful in doing most common um, mouth shapes. You could do quickly grab really good lip sync. It's also um, it tracks eye movement, um, so it's looking for the pupil of the eye, and as the eyes move, the eyes on the character move, and then anytime you blink as well, it's generating um, you know that data as well. So you could ac- have access to that. But it was getting you know puffy cheeks, and um, you know if you were to pucker your lips and make a big kind of oh you know oh face or something you know you were you're able to get that and, um, it it was it was pretty exciting and the, and that was just right out of the box so I mean I think delving deeper into it certainly you could um, I would imagine build a much more articulated uh, head yeah I was using the um, the creative Intel RealSense thing um, not the so I think that's even better in terms of like it was the standalone. Um, sort of uh, sensor bar as opposed mm-hmm. to the one that um, that you uh, get is built into a PC or for that matter um, you know I think the the technology in that sucker is even better than what we're seeing from the game oh, stuff no doubt yeah um, and I was stunned at how good it was so uh, the, I guess what I was alluding to is that you know you stand in front of it it it, it tries to work out your face and it sort of builds a model of basically of your face um, and you do a, a set of expressions, and so the set of expressions feed its uh, its primarily facts database to understand, you know, what your face is doing. And so after you've done this range of expressions, and it's not more than a few seconds, you know, to do all this sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, then it applies it to various models, and it retargets your face to um, 
to a, a face, but it is pretty much in real time and you can be sitting there. And the thing about this thing that I was using from the guys at Face Shift is it had a had a couple of options. They had one on the desk. They had one that was um, a shoulder rig, so it would actually sit over your shoulders but uh, out in front of your body by about, I'm going to say, you know, three quarters of a foot or half a foot, six inches, eight inches. And that thing meant that you could walk around the room and it would always be, you know, sitting oh, in front really of you. Cool. Yeah, that's and so then there was a... Th- a third one they developed by breaking the darn thing apart and throwing out every piece of metal in the actual original um, sensor bar until they just had the core technology of it. And then they stuck that on an arm rig off your head so you could have it. So if you turned your head left and right, it would move with your head left and right. The chest one, of course, was relative to your body. So you walk around the room, but you could, of course, turn your head to such a point that it wasn't reading your face properly because you were to the, you know, facing sideways to it. And then the one on the desk, you know, obviously you have to be seated, which really does hamper one's performance if one's a thing. But I guess the idea was, you know, if you're a voice actor and you're delivering lines, it would be easy to clip this on the back of the lectern that had the lines and you yep. would be getting not only a you know, VHS, as it were, in the old days, uh, kind of level crappy quality of someone's performance. You'd be, in the, you'd be getting presumably some HD footage from somewhere and this sucker doing a, um, a face track of you. And, and it is remarkable. But um, again, not very long to set up faceless tracking and it's uh, retargeting real time into a, an animated face. And that's, to get back to Avengers, exactly what I think informed the performances so well and allowed the actor uh, or actors to work out what they wanted to do with the faces. And then that gave so much more to the animators. Now, take nothing away from the animators because they clearly knocked it out of the park when it came to, um, you know, producing the final work. And the rendering team did a spectacular job in producing subsurface skin type stuff, you believe, even though it's green, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, has always been the problem. Uh, But yeah, it was... I think a really good way of working. And I, I just feel like in this particular situation, there's been a, a respectful growth from both sides. I mean, I have no basis in fact in saying this other than just as an outsider, but it just feels like Ruffalo's attitude to ILM is really solid and ILM's attitude to Ruffalo's performance is really solid and every film they're kind of working more to, to put that together and, and continue the work and give him what he needs as an actor and he's, doing exactly what he can to help them um, produce good stuff. It's a, It seems like a really healthy relationship that then gets rewarded by producing amazing stuff on screen. I mean, it just really is astonishingly good on screen, I think. Yeah, I would totally agree. So, Ian, what, what else did you like in the film? Um, one thing I was, I was going to call out, which I actually thought was really successful, was Quicksilver. And, and one of the reasons was that, of course, there's a character with the same name who's kind of the same character in the X-Men universe. And in the latest X-Men film, that Quicksilver sequence was pretty much the standout sequence. And so I thought there would be a lot of pressure on the guys in Avengers 2 to to do, you know, better than that or do differently than that at least. And what I liked about what they did was you actually got Quicksilver's speed from different points of view, i.e. you either saw him going fast, you saw from his own POV going slow or you saw the effect that he would have on the environment. So there wasn't just one sort of quicksilver shot. Um, And I thought by breaking up the approach to filming quicksilver and sort of realizing the visual effects, you know, whether you see his trail or whether you see, you know, the way he bumps into someone on a train or whatever, you you kind of felt like, oh, this is a different quicksilver and I don't have to compare it to the X-Men one, which was spectacular. I'm not dissing the X-Men one at all, but... Um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good approach, I think, um, 
to doing a new character that kind of is the same character, <laughs> if you if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think I think they did a great job uh, with his um, both the the sort of yeah the different perspectives that you'd see him and you'd see him from you know a normal sort of normal temporal moving person's point of view as a streak, you know, something that was almost imperceptible and, but, but, but that did leave this kind of, you know, afterglow sort of, um, you know, trace effect that was really cool. And then the, the one shot that really stuck out in my mind that I thought was really cool was when he, um, there's a slow motion punch uh, where he punches Captain America and, and the, the way he moves so sort of naturally through the scene, but the captain is like, you know, basically frozen in time almost. And, you know, it was really sort of, it would, it would have the perception of almost being struck by nothing, you know? And I thought that was so cool. That, that moment where they meet in the, is it uh, where the um, South African arms dealer has got the, you know, stuff and it's whatever that is, that's a warehouse is a, you know, bridge across between two areas and you've got yeah, them on one side and the other. Yeah, space. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a really successful scene for all of those reasons that you guys just outlined. Like it was fun, it was easy to for understand what was going on and you got to see Quicksilver just really going to town on on some of the uh, the characters. Well, and, and for that matter, Scarlet Witch. I agree. Also, I actually specifically asked Chris Townsend about that sequence because there's there's also shots of Ultron and Iron Man flying around all the ships that are there for ship breaking. And I was trying to get from him, oh, which, you know, how much of that is map paintings or CG ships and everything? And he said, you know, none of it. And of course, there would, there would be set extensions and whatnot, but it was all filmed... Um, uh, I don't know exactly where, maybe Bangladesh or something like that, but it was actually filmed at a real ship-breaking location. And oh, really? I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought, wow, that that's a really successful sequence because I thought a lot of it would be computer graphics. And, and no doubt a lot of it in some ways is, but to get those real aerials from Bangladesh and sort of use those real ships, which I have seen on documentaries and I can't believe they you know, ground those ships and then basically yeah, weld them out of existence. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so that's why they went to that location, clearly. But it, So that was a, a neat sequence with some real visuals. Do you know what the Sokovia bombed-out-looking kind of urban scape was? Was that filmed somewhere? Because that looked like, unfortunately, many horrendous, you know, post-war kind of Eastern European towns we've seen. Um, normally following some kind of horrendous bloodbath. Um, but leaving that aside for a second, it looked incredibly realistic. And was that CG or was that... Uh As I understand it, they filmed in a couple of different locations for that in northern Italy. And then they even shot at some decommissioned um, police training facility in London. Hmm. So, you know, once again, they're just sort of mixing locations and, and, and visual effects work to make that that kind of sequence but yeah you're right it had that absolute feel didn't it it looked like a real place that we might have seen yeah like, like just i'm just thinking kosovo from the 80s or so you know well i was stopping at saying kosovo because i don't want to diminish you know what a lot of people went through in in those eastern european conflicts but yeah i mean it looked like yeah i don't sound like it's a you know, for our enjoyment, enjoying the wreckage of Kosovo. But, you know what I mean? Like, it was so believably realistic that I did wonder if it wasn't some kind of... Because, you know, we've seen those horrible photos of cities that have just been subject to urban, you know, uh, gunfire, 
bombings, tank type level stuff. Not not flattened by mega A bombs, but I mean, you know, street to years of fighting. And they're just shell rocked, kind of nasty, horrendous, grey, lifeless, rubbly kind of stuff. But still there's enough life there that you could see what was destroyed, you know? I think Marvel's done that really well, though. Like, I I feel like that's something that, you know, in terms of either both location scouting as well as set dressing, like, when it comes to the establishment of, in particular, that type of set, I know, I remember in the, um, I think it's in the first Iron Man, the John Favreau uh, Iron Man, uh, there's a scene where he goes back to the village as Iron Man, that he was sort of, um, yep, you know, rescued from or whatever when he was imprisoned or whatever or that he escaped from, and um, he uh, launches sort of a, you know, sort of an attack. It's sort of the first sequence of the uh, the Iron Man suit kind of doing its thing in a combat situation, and and that same kind of thing where it's like it feels like a real place, but it's yep. a, f- a fictional kind of you know semi war torn town. So, can I also say that I thought that the stuff in Korea looked really good on screen, though I was screaming that it was the dumbest sequence in history. Like, did, did, <laughs> Why dumbest? I mean, seriously, right? Like in a film where you can lift up entire cities and do stuff, you want to get this important, really valuable thing from here to there. We're going to put it in a truck and drive it down the streets incognito. You what? Yeah, because, uh, you know, I have a lot of power and influence and robots and stuff. So I'm going to put it in a truck and drive it down the street. Uh, I see. And this is very important to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, very important. Put it in a truck, drive it down the street. And I won't go with it because what could possibly go wrong? I mean, it was just the dumbest thing. And then it didn't get any less dumber when the train started driving through what looked like Chinatown. I'm sorry, who drives, who designs tracks that end in a city where if it comes off, it goes then uh, through the the middle of a suburb for several kilometers, it felt like. The two 11-year-olds that I was sitting with when the truck, um, the back part of the truck, you know, the the cab, but the, I don't know what you call that part, but the the container part of the truck, when it it actually goes airborne and is flying along the two 11 year olds, like they were cracking up. They were like, and they both, they were, they were like, that's ridiculous. Like, but laughing, you know, like it was fun for them, but it was like one of those things where it really just kind of crossed some line into this weird, absurd terror. And it just looked so funny too, like as a thing, you know, it was so goofy. But but there was no sort of why was it really important that no one knows that he was moving this thing? Yeah, why not like, just why, fly it right? At the why not just fly it in the yeah? And yeah. like he's going to be like, I've got a really good idea. We'll do it, you know, in this truck. I mean, it was just so daft. And anyone been to Seoul? Like it takes forever to drive anywhere in Seoul, right? Like it's like Sydney or New York. I mean, it's just you know, it's traffic so, central. It's and I would just, say I, I, that was one thing I was going to ask you guys too is if if they were the, that sequence makes me think of a couple of things in particular. But I was going to ask you guys if there were any sequences or shots because this is a this is I think it said in the show notes right. This is one of the this is the biggest shot count of any Marvel movie to date, right? And it's a huge effects picture. Um, yeah. Were there any? Were there any sequences or shots, you know, that you felt didn't work as well as others? That's what normally I ask. Um, <laughs> oh, well, sorry. I don't mean to tell you. No, 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 no. I must admit there was a couple of shots in the Hulk busting sequence that felt like the physics had gone out the window, that they were exaggerating for 
comic and, you know, impactive effect. And, you know, it sort of, they they passed my sort of, they looked a bit fake because they were, everything was moving a bit too fast and it was too kind of, um, you know, for the size of the things that were moving, they were moving in rates that would cause them to, you know, cause several sound barriers to get broken. It did, um, it did feel like a bit of a different sequence in a different film, yeah. didn't it? Almost yeah. because yeah. of the colour palette too and sort of the way that they were fighting. Um, but I don't, I, I'm guessing a lot of that was intentional. They got the side of the planet. Uh, the, sorry, they got the side of the planet. They got the side of the building and yeah. then they're like airborne and then they're kind of crashing down through. It was just, for me, it felt very much like more comical in its comic book um, uh, license, I guess I'd say. Matt, what do you think? Well, that sequence, I initially thought of it as when it first sort of started, I thought, oh, here we go. This is like, you know, a big fan service moment, right? Where we're going to get to see like, you know, Hulk and the Hulk buster Iron Man suit and they're going to kind of fight it out. And this will be, you know, a key set piece. Like it felt kind of like that's what it was. But then I actually kind of, well, watching it at the conclusion of it, when they're back in the jet and they're flying back and uh, you see the shot of Bruce Banner and he's looking kind of like he's, uh, you know, he needs some, uh, <laughs> he needs some serious therapy or something. He's just looking pretty messed up. And I actually thought they wove it back into the story really well in terms of the, um, the way in which the, the Scarlet Witch character kind of executed all these kind of nightmare scenarios for everyone as a way to divide everyone. And I thought that it sort of came back into the fold, but but I, I was thinking in terms of the, the effects sequences, that one didn't really stand out to me in the way that maybe it did for you guys. But the, the thing I was thinking of was the, um, and I, I feel, I, I read a little bit about this in the, um, on some website, uh, maybe it was on your guys' website. I, I can't remember if it was that or one of the other ones, but um, about the, the bike, uh, Black Widow on the bike dropping out of the jet. And there were a, a number of shots uh, not a lot, but I mean, a, a, a more than more than uh, a dozen shots, I think, where there were some really tough um, comps for. I, I I always look at things, I guess, from the perspective of what I did for many years of compositing, and I feel like there were some really tough asks for some compositors, and some of them um, looked like they were quite a struggle to achieve a certain kind of reality, and that the bike coming out of the uh, the jet, I don't know if that was a, a physics thing or a scale thing or a comp thing. There were a lot of problems in that shot that I just, it, it just felt it, it, it's like the shot of, although it wasn't, um, as good. It, it reminded me of the shot of, uh, Schwarzenegger on the bike in Terminator two, like jumping off the bridge. Although that was actually a practical thing. And for the most part, you know, like with the wire removal, but, um, there was something about it that didn't quite work for me it's interesting you bring it up because i was going to talk about that too i i think the final shot in the film from what i remember really works but when i talked to dean egg the most challenging thing about that shot was that they needed it for the comic-con the year before Mm -hmm. so it's one of those shots and this does happen with these big movies where it's in a trailer or it's in a comic book presentation a comic-con presentation that needs to be done a year before the film's out and so Ultimately, apparently, the shot had multiple iterations, you know, either just the stunt woman or a CG Black Widow or just Scarlet's head or just Scarlet's body or just the CG body or whatever it was. And so 
they didn't actually finish the shot with the final, you know, Scarlet Head CG, final CG digi-double mm-hmm. until very late in the day. Um, so depending on what trailer you saw and what, you know, what um, Comic-Con presentation you saw, I guess, you, you got a different looking shot. Um, and I guess well, I that might have been too, one of the like big if, challenges. When I wonder too, yeah, like if, if you see a, a, a trailer shot and, you know, having worked on many trailer shots in my career, you know, they are always like, you know, down to the wire and you're pushing something that's not even close to being ready to be shown and you're doing anything and everything you can to try to make it look as cool as you can so that it, you know, it's something they can show way before the movie's going to come out. But I always wonder too, in that context, and maybe this is what you're saying, but like once you see it as an audience member and you see the sort of the, the maybe not quite so completed composite or the effect shot you know can you unsee it when you see it in the movie when it's finished right like our right yeah yeah exactly the only thing i'd say is she's pregnant right so or she was pregnant so scarlett johansson didn't ride motorbikes she didn't Uh, do these stunts there's there you know it's funny like i imagine if you're listening to this and you worked on scarlett johansson's body doubles and face stuff, you're like, oh yeah, like they have a go you're at like, that, but they didn't pick up on the 400,000 other yeah. shots we did of replacing <laughs> a body that you never even knew. The woman had, you know, you know. So I think if you do have a problem with that shot, I'm not saying you don't, okay, but there's got to have been uh, so much stuff in there of yeah. replacing her body, body doubles, um, digital uh, doubles that was so seamless that it's a miracle that we don't have 40 shots that we've got on our. Um, you know, kind of red flag list. The other thing I, the other thing I was, yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, I, 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 I would concur. I, the other thing I was going to ask about too, though, is there's, there are two, um, one at the very beginning and one at the end, um, big, like, you know, 360 sweeping flying yep. camera shots where we sort of see all the heroes like engaged in their, you know, hero-ness <laughs> in battle. And the one at the end of the film, for for me, I felt like was pretty successful. It was pretty effective where they're kind of swirling around that, yep. you know, the thing that they're standing in front of, which is the, I, I can't remember what it was, but that like, whatever, that lock and pin thing that controls the something that fires the thing into the yeah, whatever. The important but, thing um, was they had to protect yeah, the, the MacGuffin thing and that they're all standing yeah. around. Um, you know, that, that shot, uh, that sequence anyway, of that kind of swirling camera, I thought worked really well. And you got to see everybody kind of, you know, rising to the occasion. But the one uh, in the snow um, where they're, I guess they're fighting all the guys from, what's the other, not S.H.I.E.L.D., but the Hydra dudes. That shot uh, where the camera's kind of flying around and we see them all. And then there's the, it's sort of the, the conclusion of that shot where they're all kind of lined up you know, at the side, like there was something about that for me, at least as at the outset, that camera movement that it was, it somehow felt, um, this is so ridiculous to even say this. I feel like I sound so stupid, but it, it somehow was less believable for me. Like it, I don't know that that one worked as well, at least, uh, at the outset, it was like, it was so much information. It was hard to follow what was going on. And I didn't, I'm not sure if I, if that one read as well for me. I think it's 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 interesting that it's meant to be a, an ode to the tie-in shot in the first Avengers that happens mm-hmm, in New York, mm-hmm. and here you meant to show, or the, I think the intention of the snow forest shot is meant to be, look how well they're all fighting together. You know, they're a real team. 
Um, but clearly, what they've had so, to, had to do. So, just as just as an aside, though, did you see that somebody posted on on Twitter? You know that the signal, the the signature shot of that, where you've got all of the characters stacked up in the yeah. air, and someone posted Hulk posts first first selfie of superheroes. <laughs> That's <laughs> it does awesome. Look like he's he's taking he's a selfie. the camera. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> Only that I think on. that maybe what you're feeling is like the way that they've. Uh, uh, seamed all the shots together which they've clearly shot you know with spider cam and whatever else and digital environments maybe just the way that they've had to merge those all together is is why you feel like the motion's kind of off when i think for me it's it's one of those and it's a personal taste thing too like i guess which so whatever take it with a grain of salt it's one of those ones where like i bet that looked really cool in previs you know to me as a shot like i and maybe people love it so maybe i'm just sound like i'm talking out of my uh, backside here but like that is one of those things where for me uh, when it all comes together like it just felt like it felt like a cool previous shot but not like really a, as thought out of a finished shot I guess it was more I don't know it just didn't work for me yeah well you know I mean uh, let's face it a lot of sh- lot of effect shots um, a lot of stuff to uh, to kind of you know nail <laughs> um, so so, what do we think in terms of um, the progression of this film? Do we feel like we saw things in this film that are the same as what we... I think we touched on this earlier. Like, do we feel like it's it advanced the art or we we are in a sort of this is what it's like kind of level of... Do we expect the Avengers slash Marvel Universe to continue to aura us with technological developments or do we feel like what we've got we have to stick with? I guess I sort of feel like there's something about the franchise, the the Marvel universe and this type of movie where I I feel like there's something so kind of um for lack of a better expression there's something so meat and potatoes about it. You know, like it's it's a real it's like a we're watching a staple kind of effects genre and a exploration of sort of the visual effects uh, language. Now, that's not to say that there aren't amazing technological breakthroughs and developments that occur in the production of these projects. I wouldn't say that. You know, I mean, I think that's without question. And I think, you know, w- what we were talking about with the Hulk and sort of the digital makeup on, you know, vision or the sequence that I really liked. I love some of the, I think some of the particle effects uh you know, coming off of the the big floating city at the end are just so amazing looking and so fun to just like gaze at. Um, I wish the shots were longer almost, you know, but is it, is it breaking new ground, you know, where I feel like my, you know, my brain is exploding or my face is melting off. Like if it is like, it's, it's, it's doing it for my money, it's doing it sort of behind the behind the lens you know like we're not it's not in a showy way it's all in service to the story and so i don't know that i i don't know that i'm seeing it in that in that regard if i understand your question correctly yeah do we do we feel that did anyone watch it in stereo i saw 2d I only saw 2d because the this was stereo converted right and i i can remember but it seems like yesterday that we would have spent a lot of time discussing the astonishing job to stereo convert something this amazingly stacked up with elements, volumetrics, effects, 
characters and stuff. And yet, uh, you know, in the world of there's that many shots, this is really probably one of the most complicated stereo conversion jobs ever been done. And we haven't even mentioned it to this point. I think, Ian, you wrote something about this, didn't you? I did. I talked to the guys at Prime Focus World um, who uh, I think have done a pretty pretty great job in re- recent films, stereo converting stuff without us. It's like what you said. We haven't even noticed it. It's kind of um, well, we have seen it. In I stereo. didn't see any stereo errors in this. I thought it was it was um, yeah. it was remarkable. Yeah. I think I think they've really got the techniques down pat, and that they've been touting a new tool that they use called assisted breakout, which is all about getting the mats right from the different vendors. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, the stereo is interesting, isn't it? Because I know a lot of people who saw this film not in stereo on purpose, you know, they've had bad stereo experiences, but I wonder whether if they did go and see some recent stereo films that that might change their mind. Um, and I just went to a screening that didn't happen to be in a press screening that didn't happen to be in stereo, but otherwise I probably would have sought out a stereo screening. I mean, do we think that there is still a cachet, a, uh, an extra element that the audience is buying into with stereo? I mean, they must, I guess. Otherwise, I they wouldn't be spending money on, to convert. It so depends on who you ask. I mean, you know, I have probably, you know, equal number of, you know, good friends who would fall in either camp. You know, some of my, my old uh compadres from the business you know they love seeing stuff in 3d but then there's probably just as many uh and you know a lot of other friends that i've made sort of since coming out to the east coast who um maybe aren't as um enamored with the 3d experience you know so it's it just depends i think it's it's really comes down to personal taste and uh you know if a filmmaker were to say you know, I, I, I really think my movie should be seen exclusively in 3D, like Cameron did with Avatar or something, then I'd be like, well, okay, you know, I guess I'll, I'll give it a go, you know. But I, I, I have a good number of people that I know who, for whom uh, stereo isn't really, they can't see it in stereo because they have, uh, you know, some, you know, they, maybe they see with one eye or they have some vision-oriented problems, so stereo doesn't work. So, I don't know, I'm... I just think it depends on who you ask, you know. Somebody posted on the internet the other day a really good idea. It was like, uh, get a pair of stereo glasses, get two pairs actually, and pop uh, one of the glasses from one of the things and swap the lenses. So you end up with a pair of stereo glasses where it's polarizing the same way on both eyes. And then you can go and see a stereo film with your friends who want to see stereo. You'll see it in mono You'll, and at the right color level because it'll be knocked down by the, you know, the, <laughs> the glasses. It's just that you won't have any stereo artifacts and you'll look like everybody else in the theater and you won't, you won't be unpopular with your mates. And I was like, okay, good to know. Um, I, I think that I just want to make a shout out to the artist, like the, the ability to do a stereo conversion on something this complicated. You know, we, you mentioned a new tool, Ian, but I can't begin to think that it isn't absolutely just in addition to lots of hard work and really really dedicated work that uh that doesn't probably get enough mention um and you know it's uh, facilitating um a lot of stuff that you know this was shot not in stereo so it was uh given the flexibility to shoot it you know with the kind of flexibility that a uh, smaller rig allows Shot on the alexa wasn't it i think and um yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that they've got stereo conversion working to the level that they have so that you can shoot mono, get be- both solutions out, as it were, and not have any restrictions on the crew and the 
performers while doing stuff um, that if somebody does want to sit in stereo, uh, they're able to do so. So, yeah. But, oh my God, I just would not want to have been the stereo supervisor on this. Like, it had been the best gig in the world, right? Like, you've got the new Avengers film. And then, like, about half an hour later, oh, my God, I got the new Avengers film. <laughs> it would have been like, yeah, just like, how bad. hard is this? Well, guys, now, we might want to cancel our plans for, like, forever uh, as we try and um, work out how to uh, separate all these layers. Anyway. Um, it's a small point, but uh, as you guys didn't see it in Sarah, but I do think it was a, a job well done. Guys, I think we're kind of almost out of time, but um, I'm certainly looking forward to where uh, this stuff goes in the future. I don't feel like it's jumped the shark. I don't feel like it's um, it's over. And I also don't feel like we've so maxed out on the CG that uh, it's just destruction porn and there's nowhere else to go. This oh, doesn't, for example, feel like Transformers. It just seems to have gone you know, so far down that it's very hard for them to to come up with something new that I'm interested in. It's yeah, I still think they're telling, like, you know, attempting to tell a, a thoughtful story with, you know, nuance and whatnot in character. And, you know, I, I think the uh, comments that I've heard people, you know, cultural genocide, I think was the term used by uh, Inaratu, right? The Birdman uh, mm. director. I don't I don't concur with that. I feel like there's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a different type of film. It's a different genre. And, you know, I think a lot of people really enjoy these kind of movies. I know I do. And, um, but that being said, I, I can also enjoy the, you know, uh, a great indie movie too, you know? So it's, I, I, I think, um, it's great that there are these types of films and that they've, they've been, uh, as a studio, I think Marvel has been so ambitious, uh, in trying to create this really rich, um, universe with all these different characters. And I thought that was one of the fun things in this one was seeing, you know, War Machine and uh, Falcon and some of these other kind of peripheral uh, characters um, come back in this movie. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to play out with the sort of the new Avengers, as it were. Um, but but I like these guys. Um, I want to see more of them. So I'm looking forward to uh, what's next, Ian, in the slate. Is there a Thor next or a Captain America next? Gosh, I wish I knew. I thought it was Captain America Civil War, but I could be totally wrong about that. I think that's true, though. I, I think that's what I've read as well. So, Just just FYI, like what the heck is happening up at uh, at Thor's home, home world? Did we not leave Loki in charge? He keeps on going back. Does he not notice it's not his father? You know, I mean... <laughs> well, I did read a bit of background on that in that um, Tom Hiddleston did do a few scenes for this film and then didn't make the final cut. But I think those scenes might have been one of the dream sequences um, that Thor has. So I don't know if it dealt with the fact that Loki's on the throne there. Um, but, you know, they sort of... They they do mess around with these films a lot in post, in, in a good way, I think, in terms of refining the story. And, you know, they might save a sequence for the next film or they might save a character and you know Loki's kind of beloved isn't he so I don't think he's he was missed in a way but I think we know that he's going to come back again anyway yes the only thing I'm very 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 concerned about is that I'm going to have to see one of these Avengers film with Thanos the ridiculously overjawed idiot looking stupid assed character that seems to appear I love Thanos you are wrong about Thanos Mike I'm a big I, fan. I, I, I'm sorry. And Josh, no. but Josh Brolin is so rad. Yeah. <laughs> He's so cool. And <laughs> okay. the, the tie-in with He's Guardians. He's going to be great in that role. I mean, 
What, Look, what's I really... was wrong about Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought, you know, a tree talking to a squirrel, this is not working for me, and I was completely wrong. That's still my favorite Marvel movie. That movie was yeah, so that, great. Yeah, that was a classic. That was the funniest and uh, and probably the best vibe. But that being said, yeah, I'm, you know, he could be... He could be my shark, I, I, a shark, or should I say, pend off off the coast of California for no apparent reason, shark <laughs> area that the Fonz jumps. Um, I think, uh, yes, if I have a, I haven't had it yet. I mean, I thought that the first Thor was a bit like, you know, Abba takes over um, Xanadu, but, you know, <laughs> I haven't had a whole rejected film yet, but, oh my God. That uh, that Thanos guy looks really worrying to me. They better. He's pulling the strings. No, he's he's a. You mean he's a puppet? He's a bad animatronic puppet? Is that no, what you're trying to say no, to me? No, he's pulling that the would strings. Explain he's a lot. controlling things. I mean, that's 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 why he's interesting. Because well, the one thing that was cool is okay. it's a film, and he's a character, <laughs> and he looks bad. <laughs> I'm not saying that he's not for serving a plot point. I'm just saying he looks stupid. You know, it's like uh, it's like a Ferrari with only two wheels on it. It's just not a Ferrari. It's yeah, it's just an odd thing that doesn't go very well. I do I understand think it's. The... It, oh, sorry. I, I do think it's really cool though that like my my kid like you know we're in the movie theater and we're getting ready to get up and leave as the movie ends. Like because I heard there's no scene at the end of the movie, so we're just like we all stand up, and um and then there's that little after scene which had the Thanos in it. You know so. And they show him and he's like, I guess I'll have to do this myself. And he puts on the the gauntlet or whatever. And I, I don't really know all the lore, but my son, my son goes, he's like, oh, great. Now Thanos has the infinity gauntlet. Great. And he's all like, he, like at the end of the movie, he's kind of bummed. He's like this, you know, thinking that. Hang on the, a second. I thought there was the mind stone, the space stone, the reality stone, the power stone and Thor's stoned. And, and. <laughs> That's no it, idea. right? Like, I, what is this thing that you just said? It's the some what? sort of the infinity gauntlet. I, I mean, I, I, I get gauntlet? told what all these things are, you know. Uh, and you're gonna have to draw me a diagram because I, I thought that that yeah, I think there are. <laughs> I know there are a number of stones, but there's Loki's staff and the Tesseract and the Asgardian whatever it is thingy that the thing that they do in the Guardians of the Galaxy, and then there's the orb thing. But I yeah, okay. I, I really hope it's just I'm just really in I'm very worried about this. This is very very concerning. I'm going to have a whole film that I'm just sitting there shaking my head, going, "What is that guy's problem?" In all seriousness, I know what you're talking about. The films currently, maybe not Thor necessarily, feel grounded, and you're worried that as soon as they go into space and do some weird stuff, that it won't. But I, look I at what Thor they did with Guardians. Right. Look at what they did with Guardians. It totally works. No, no, I'm I'm with you. I totally wouldn't have thought it would. But the but the difference is. I didn't say, having seen, you know, the trailer of Guardians, that it wasn't going to work. I said before I saw the trailer that it wasn't going to work, right? I agreed that when I saw the characters, they didn't look as bad as I imagined they were going to. But this is the reverse, right? This is, I've seen, you know, this guy with the ridiculously thanos hands, gloves, jaw, mask, face thing, and gone, bleh. And then discovered who it is, right? This is me reacting to what I'm seeing on screen in a negative way. So, yeah, I'm really completely worried that he's going to be, like, just ridiculous. 
and ridiculous as in I can't. I'm embarrassed to be sitting in the cinema watching this. I need an exit think, sign. Please. Think about how cool Thanos is. Uh, if he did a Doctor Chinigan, how great it would be. You know, you the <laughs> Doctor Chinigan, where you draw the little face on your chin and you turn upside down. Thanos yeah. would make the coolest Doctor Chinigan. Yeah, and I know the theory is some of you <laughs> listening at home and you're yelling at the your iPod saying or your phone saying, yes, yes, but he looks like that in the cartoons. I understand he looks like that in the cartoons. I totally get that he looks like that in the cartoons and he has whatever it is, infinity gauntlets or whatever it is. It's just the thing is, it doesn't look so stupid when it's drawn in a comic book, but on the screen, you know, it just looked really <laughs> stupid. It's always looked stupid. That's what I always uh, yet tell to people. I look look so, the cartoon of me looks so much cooler than the real thing. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Um, uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you guys. Matt, where can people uh, track you down, follow you, and see what you're up to? Well, you can always go to my website, which is mattwallen.com, or follow me on the Twitters at mattwallen, or... Lately, you can find me at the movies. I've been to see two other awesome movies this summer, Ex Machina, and I just saw, just this morning, Mad Max Fury Road, and my face melted off and my head exploded. Uh, that, is in fact, that is, in fact, our next VFX show. Oh, that was so mm. mind-blowingly awesome. Well, we'll discuss it and more when we regroup. And Ian, for you? Your Twitter feed, perhaps? Twitter feed is at VFXblog, and you can always find our stuff on fxguide.com, of course. And, of course, I am Mike Seymour on uh, the Twitters. And, guys, it's been really great uh, talking to you. It's been really huge. Thanks so much, guys, for listening. We obviously a ton of great films coming up over the summer uh, to talk about. Jurassic World, uh, Tomorrowland. We just mentioned Mad Max, um, well beyond uh, his uh, Thunderdome hair days. Um, <laughs> and, yeah... Uh, some really interesting stuff to discuss there in terms of like uh, how those films were pulled together but all that and more coming up on the show until now until then sorry I'm Mike Seymour thanks so much for being with us see you guys if you have any questions or comments please email us at vfx at fxguide.com copyright 2012 fxguide llc